Ross, I had a toast all set up. It was beautiful. It rhymed. It was that Irish bar shit. And then you came in and told me what your father got you for Christmas. And I just had to throw it all out of the window. So tell me what dad got Ross for Christmas. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a tradition where he gets me something I would know. I, I, I can't. I am at a loss of words to explain. <laughs> uh, so this year he got me a fan from a 1955 Thunderbird that's mounted on this very thick, board of wood but it is uh the thunderbird was and by implication the fan itself was once owned by barry goldwater and there is a letter on the back to on the back of the wooden board to uh prove this and there's a photo too god so to uh barry goldwater's thunderbird Thunderbird's fan, fan. <laughs> merry christmas Hey, welcome to the Mix Six. This is Caleb. This is Spencer. Uh, we just want to start off by saying here in episode seven, thank you so much, so so much for being a patron of the podcast. This is the first episode in which we've been able to record while taking in your feedback and surveys and suggestions for you higher level patrons. Uh, and as I am sort of feeling my way out with this, with our ninety six, so we're currently ninety six ninety six patrons in two weeks. Um, I forgot to take names, so I'll announce names next time. Uh, and sorry, we're, do we're doing this live. Consider it a boo-boo. Uh, a little boo-boo. Um, but we did take your suggestions on board. You'll recognize them when they come up. Uh, and I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. And one of your suggestions we're going to start with today, which is our beer rating system. Yes. So as you know at this point, if you've listened to previous episodes, we rate beers one to five, one being awful, something you'd want to avoid for the rest of your life, <laughs> and one being a five, something that you would seek through peril for the purposes of drinking. <laughs> We asked all of you wonderful patrons what our rating system for today's beers ought be, and an overwhelmingly crush of a winner, right? Yeah, Almost 50% of, the, of mm -hmm. the vote was standardized testing. Yeah. So one... And, and what those beers would do after high school. It, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a one, then, is below basic. Okay, so that's a beer that's just not, not going anywhere. Yeah. He'll be at the gas station, much like where you would find the beer. Uh, a two, then, is a basic. A three is proficient. Four is advanced, and a five is a Montessori school. Yeah, they didn't even take that standardized test because nope. they realized that it's a right. absurd sham. Of Did, didn't system. even care. Don't yeah. need it. Don't need it to know how great they are. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So given that that's our rating system for today, Caleb, what are you drinking, and how do you rate it? Well, I, I just want to be clear here and you know put my biases on the table. Mm -hmm. Ethics and beer journalism. And uh, that this is a suggestion, a uh, Samuel Smith's Organic Chocolate Stout. Uh, which I had not tried before, but was suggested to us by one of our beautiful listeners, whose name for I forgot to collect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to say this is a hard Montessori school, starting like, with a five. Yeah, it's already it's a it tastes like chocolate. Like, and I I don't say that lightly. I've tried a lot of chocolate stouts that are like, oh, it's a Guinness with some chocolate in it. Sure, it tastes like it's made entirely of chocolate. You and know, it has for, some alcohol in it. For someone who writes for a living, you are shit with narrative <laughs> art. You yes. started with a five. I started with a five. Yes, yeah. so, uh, cool. But, but this is uh, it's a Montessori. So after school, uh, probably got a valley a valley job, Silicon Valley job. Yeah, but it's an organic chocolate stout, so it's a little bigger. 
Right. It's a little, it's a little too fat to get on the stage at the TED Talk. So, but it's a workhorse. Like it solves your programming problems, and he's doing well for himself. So maybe like a chief technology officer. <clears throat> yes. Not yes. a CEO. Not yeah. a out in front in the public. He's a CTO though. A great. solid CTO. Love it. Uh, Love Sp- it. Spencer, for the record, this could actually be a good narrative, but this is about you know the fall. Uh, you <laughs> know, so it's like a man in full at the beginning. Everything's going great, and then everything's just going to go worse from here. So. <laughs> yeah. That's another. That's cool. a, that's a classic tuned, narrative. <laughs> yeah. You know, a little Hamlet here. So. <laughs> Well, now that we're off to a killer start, uh, we're going to jump right in with Beer One. Beer One today is Armchair Director, mm-hmm. which is our movie segment. Another wonderful suggestion from our listeners it, for a subtopic. Though. It absolutely was, and, and I have a mea culpa when we get into this. And today's Armchair Director topic is top three films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. So before we get into the list, I have, I have two things to say here. One is a concern. Um, in the past when we've done movie things... You've just been so wrong that it's created some banter. Um, but but I, I, I know for a fact, because every time a new Marvel film comes out, you and I get a beer shortly thereafter, and then we talk about where it ranks in the hierarchy, and our Definitely. hierarchy is relatively similar. It's pretty on board. Yeah. So today might be a day of harmony rather than a day of, of discord. The other thing I want to say is um, a, a listener pointed out rightly, I think, that in the middle of my blind rage about s'mores, which is why I credit this, uh, this mischaracterization, I think I said something to the effect of Captain America Winter Soldier is the fifth best Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Yeah. A, I did not mean that. I meant Civil War, which I had recently seen. Yes, yeah. Uh, so I want to I correct that. Uh, and again, I apologize. I was overcome with whatever that was. Uh, and, and thank you to all of you great listeners who have, in the aftermath of, of us launching that episode, sent just a bevy of s'mores-related media at me, uh, you <laughs> sons of bitches. Okay? So, it's a sort of marshmallowy tidal wave. Really poking, the, poking the bear there, folks. Okay? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but you do not want to see me angry. Um, <laughs> anyway, my third favorite is The Avengers. <laughs> Absolutely it is. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's the third best. It's the only uh, big film like that that I I've seen do uh, cobbling together of a bunch of introductory stories really well. Yeah, talking about a movie where the memories might interfere with my enjoyment of it, I did not expect it to go well, even though, like, oh, they got Joss Whedon. I think he could pull it off. Absolutely. But, like, you don't want to be burned on that faith again. You don't want to, like, walk in and it's a Fantastic Four situation. Yeah. Notice I didn't specify a movie in that franchise. Just all of the all Fantastic of them Four bad. situations. <laughs> uh, but when you leave that theater and, holy shit, they pulled it off, I'm going to go see that easily four more times before it leaves uh, the theater. Yeah, 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 it's in there. It's I, definitely up there. I hate going to theaters. It stresses me out. I saw that movie in theaters three times. Uh, if it was re-released tomorrow, I would go see it tomorrow. Yeah. And they pulled off some really interesting things in that film beyond the scope of the story. Like, for example, if I remember correctly, that's the first appearance of Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk, right? Because mm-hmm. this is after mm-hmm. the Ed Norton shit show, which yes. is actually a really good Hulk film, I yes. think, all things considered. Uh, Ruffalo comes in. I thought it was an odd casting decision when I heard about it because Mark Ruffalo. I thought he was fucking wonderful. He did even a great job. An upgrade over Norton in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I thought his whatever that is, subtlety, calmness, humility, was a perfect balance to Robert Downey Jr. I was impressed with that movie from top to bottom, and it felt fun. And it was Josh Whedon. And like I know a lot of people aren't into Josh Whedon, and a lot of people are wrong about a lot of stuff. That's right. And that's one of those things. We all make mistakes. Uh, Josh Whedon writes shows regularly about people whose job is literally murdering other people, like yeah. professional psychopaths, that each one contains more humanity than, say, the entire cast of Gilmore Girls. So <laughs> uh, it, it's just a wonderful film. Speaking it's of old wounds. fantastic. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, it's also third on my list. <clears throat> so, again, we have some harmony here. Uh, I almost put Civil War into the three spot. 
because it's my four spot. Really? Yeah. I just rewatched it literally before I came over here. Yeah. But it's it's still beneath. Because it's on fucking Netflix now. Yeah, and that's just fantastic. Good I'll job, give Netflix. Netflix ten dollars this month just to watch that twice. Yes, so exactly. Um, interesting note about Civil War for me. I, I went through this whole correction at the beginning of this this bit about how it's five for me. It's actually moving out of five because I rewatched uh, Deadpool and I hadn't seen Deadpool in months. And Deadpool is perfect, and I forget about it too often. Yeah. So Civil War is a five six for me. But then we have like an MCU argument there. Like, What's well, totally not MCU? Way, Deadpool is not. Yeah, MCU. he's outside technically. He's Sony. Oh, we'll see. Then it's yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Uh, what's two for you? Two for me is going to be Guardians. Uh-huh. Are you? Are we right on board with this? We're we're simpatico. Yeah. On this. I mean, I'm sorry for those of you expecting you the the banter back and forth, but we we can't argue over the truth. <laughs> right. That's right. We, this is not. This should not be revelatory. Sky is up. Right. Ground is down. It uh, it is the most fun I've ever had in the theater. Like not not a question. The soundtrack is perfect. It is the best use of music in any film ever. In fact, for the holidays, my wonderful wife got me the Guardians of the Galaxy vinyl. Nice. And it has not left my record player. Granted, I only have three other records uh, because it's 2016, but that's the one that will never, never come off of that that thing. Did you know there's actually a local tie to the soundtrack and Springfield in yeah. that? Uh, you know, National Audio. Yeah, it's one of the last places on earth producing audio cassettes. And the um, uh, what was it? Uh, God, who's the director? Uh, James James Gunn. James Gunn. Yeah, had National Audio produce like a limited number of cassettes for the cast and crew. Nice uh, of the soundtrack. So we're basically famous now. Springfield. Yeah, we're basically Hollywood insiders. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even though we have no connection to National Audio. Uh, uh, yeah, not yet. <laughs> uh, it's number two for me. So here's the real trick. What's number one for you? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about Guardians. Okay. In that. Uh, Avengers is up there for being a middle ground super movie. And I mean that you have high power and low power together. Mm. And like, that's the hardest to pull off in comics, not to mention on film when you've got like Thor with Captain America and you're trying to make it like believable and engaging through all. Um, and Guardians of the Galaxy is the perfect solution for that. The one I thought that the Avengers couldn't figure out the middle ground for. And maybe the only film that's ever really pulled it off. Because mm. it just goes all high concept. Like mm-hmm. everything is ridiculously overblown and yeah. over the top at all points in time. Uh, and that that's one way to solve it. Um, and so that's why I'm uh, enamored with that. Because I think the even better choice for solving that like power mix problem in superhero media is to go low power and keep it street level and nothing does that better than winter soldier uh because holy shit it's like the jason bourne movie i never knew i wanted exactly what it is yes oh god it's so good it feels like the handy cam version (laughs) of a thing that if you were on the freeway and saw it you would pull your phone out and record all of it and it will have been the greatest day but for if you were in one of the cars that gets flipped over on the freeway. <laughs> yes. It would be great or you'd be dead. That's right. So, okay. you know, either end of that spectrum. And you know what? When the Hulk destroys a building, you're like, oh, okay. The Hulk destroyed a building. But those punches hurt. Jesus. Like, they're visceral. You're into that every time it hits. Uh, and, I mean, just the fight scenes alone bring Civil War up to four for me, even though the story is good as well. Because it's just, they're still, they're doing that visceral. It's thing. choreographed well. The opening uh, scene in Winter Soldier where they're on the boat... Uh, and you've got that kind of wide-angle shot of Cap, like, jumping over things and knocking people out as he's crossing the boat. Yes. I think is one of the most interesting. Uh, it's like if James Bond were a younger, more agile man. That's what yeah. he would do. And the stuff they take from, like, Hong Kong cinema, like the Jackie Chan chef, Captain America pulls off, like rearranging people's gun slings yes. and like tying them up with it and throwing them out of shit. This, like, Rumble of the Bronx level environmental manipulation 
you can suddenly believe it now because he's Captain Fucking America That's and right. his synapses work faster than yours. Yep. Like, and so you're, it's just so it's just so awesome. The, there's an early fight scene in Winter Soldier with Batrock, I think, is the guy they're trying to find oh, on yeah. the boat, where Cap just drops his shield. He's like, "Come on!" Yeah. And they just go at it. Yeah. And like, there is there was a little piece of me that had like a Ryan Gosling and Drive response. You know, I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> what's happening here?" Yeah. Uh, Winter Soldier, top to bottom, it's a little bit long, but not in the wrong way. Like, for example, I thought Civil War was a little bit long, and it was a little bit long because I felt like they tried to do too much. Like, there's so much happening in Civil War. Winter Soldier feels a little bit long in that there was a legitimate story to pull apart in a bunch of different ways, and so they continued to pull it apart interestingly. And talk about, like, an iconic character moment. Like, the whole thing's about Captain America learning what modern, you know, post-terrorism espionage is, and then realizing he's right not to be suspicious of that entire ethos. Absolutely. And then overcoming the day by literally getting on the microphone and saying... Be fucking Americans. Hydra's everywhere. Yep. Stand up. And then causing an armed rebellion insurrection within S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, there's no better iconic flat character arc than Captain America realizing he just needs to keep Captain America as yeah. hard as he fucking can. <laughs> well, and think about, so if Winter Soldier doesn't land, because I thought first Captain America was good. I thought it was interesting looking. It was kind of nostalgic. Uh, but I didn't think it was a great film. Uh if Winter Soldier doesn't land, uh, Civil War never makes sense because yes. you, you cannot have a world where Captain America can be against governmental decisions yeah. if he doesn't do such a fucking excellent job of proving it as a point of patriotism in yeah. Winter Soldier. Yeah. From an argumentative level, it was shocking how good it was. Also, you make Nick Fury Batman, which is the best possible choice. It's like, oh, no, he, he's not that great. He just has everything for every situation on him at all times. Dude, that Nick Fury in the uh, like Explorer scene or whatever oh, he's God. driving. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that the right there. Gatling gun, yes. the laser getaway vehicle like shit. That's <laughs> that, so that is what I want out of that. Out of a universe where it doesn't feel like everything has to be Norse gods and genetically engineered green monsters, sometimes it's just people with cool shit doing awesome stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to get another beer. Yeah. Let's do this. Hey, Spence, what are you drinking? Uh, I've been waiting, well, seven episodes, I guess, to review this beer on this podcast because it, for me, has become kind of a white whale. So this is Perennial, uh, Perennial's Von Pomplemousse. It's their Berliner Weiss, so it fits squarely in that low alcohol percent, which means you can drink a bunch of them. Woo! Uh, And it's got that sour tart aspect to it. It's a great light drinker. If you're looking to get into the sour tart goza world, I would highly recommend uh, Perennial's Berliner Weiss, and I will go to the ends of the earth to thank them for this product. It is comfortably a Montessori school for me. I say that at the risk of Two judgment. Montessori's in a row. I know, and I just knocked you for giving a Montessori out the gate. It also denies Ross's plot idea that perhaps everything after your Montessori school was, was a downward spiral. It's turning spiral. into fan fiction. Well, maybe it's we both got, of we you. we got a bunch of Mary Sue beers up top. Yeah. Right. can't do no wrong. This is just starting to be Hall H at Comic-Con <laughs> for beer. But hey, it's a Montessori school. There are no grades. Stand on your desk. Take your clothes off. We don't care. So, so this beer has a meteoric rise after high school through an actual large state school system, not a Ivy League, but the grit that he learns in that state school system propels him to be... No. He wants to earn it. He's a hard worker, propels him to be uh, a really successful senator, and never seeks a presidential seat because he doesn't need that for his ego. Wow. Yeah. 
So he's just like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, he, but as a tart beer. He's the American you want to be, and yet the American none of us are. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. thank you, Perennial. With the name of Von Pomplemousse, too. Like, yeah. That's a mixing pot. Also maybe a sleeper agent. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Very competent. Uh, I would say somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, Caleb, what are we talking about? So on this Asked Miss Six... I have trouble with X's. Um, we have been proposed with the subtopic of Sophie's beer choice regarding uh, some sort of scenario in which we must choose to save one beer and another beer must be stricken from the face of the earth. So um, I was given the remit of coming up with a sort of background for this. Well, this is what you do. Yeah. You you write these things. Yes. So, uh, I totally improved one, and I just... Uh, it's October 2017. Uh, Russian international relations have flared up. Things have gone south. Interesting. Uh, Putin, in an attempt to eliminate our food supply and what is now the lukewarm war, uh, mm. makes a genetically engineered bacteria to eat grain because Russia's still good because vodka is made of potatoes. Brilliant. So, Absolutely brilliant. Uh, we managed to stop it just in time, but we're on rationing. And so we have to eliminate some extraneous uses of grain. And our president-elect, in his interminable stupidity, decides beer is one of those non-essential uses of grain. He does not drink. Yeah, I know. Could he be more monstrous? <laughs> uh, and so we have to, as uh, the Leaders of the greatest podcast in history Duh. ask the Mix Six because we've ascended by that point. Um, in only ten, in only ten short months, yes, and it was a meteoric rise, viral, uh, <laughs> not unlike von Pomplemousse through the state school system. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. uh, we have been tasked with deciding what beer must be stricken from the face of the earth, and and what beer must be saved. Wow. Deep. Yes. I love what you've done here. You've built a visceral world yes. for us. It's a terrifying near future utopia. So let me let me tell you how I approached this question. And again, this came from one of our patrons, uh, a name we did not capture, but we will. I really fucked that up. Right. We will. We, we will find you. We will thank you. Uh, and we're thanking you on air. So here's how I approach this one. My thinking is in a, in a post-beer world, which is not a world I want to live in, no. to be honest. See the podcast. Um, here are things that I'm looking for in beer. So I'm looking for drinkability. If I'm going to be able to find beer, I want to find a beer I can really enjoy drinking because I'm not going to get to drink that much of it. I'm looking for a white whale, something that I would go on a perilous quest for in a world without beer to find at, at my risk and perhaps the risk of those around me. So watch out, assholes. And then I'm also looking for an economy beer. Uh, something that I can functionally swap meat or trade for the purposes of upgrading other beers or maybe getting other fine goods. Whiskey at this point. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've listed three beers, and then I'll get to the beer that I would just absolutely get rid of, and we could use all of its materials to do literally anything else, including not make beer, <clears throat> because it shouldn't have been used to make this beer in the first place. <laughs> all right. So in terms of drinkability, the beer that I'm looking for to stockpile as much as I can for the purposes of just enjoying for a limited run I want Boulevard Brewing Company's Ginger Lemon Rattler. Oh, that's good. It's delicious. It's light. It's crisp. It's refreshing. I believe we've already reviewed it on the pod, and I believe I gave it whatever the five was that week. I mean, this beer means business, and you can drink a million of them and not feel like you've had a million beers. Bingo, bingo. The White Whale, that beer for which I would travel to the ends of the a Doctor Strange-like vision quest <laughs> through peril to find this beer. It would be Mother's Brewing Company's MILF. 
Oh, man, it's so good. Their Imperial Stout is one of the most beautiful beers I've ever tried. Inside trading here, I think they're bottling it tomorrow, which means it should be on shelves within the next couple of weeks. I'm busy tomorrow. God, God bless America. I have to go stand outside a brewery. If you if you <laughs> haven't had Mother's Brain Company's MILF, it's a limited release in January and some of February. You should absolutely seek it out, and I would seek it out despite the risk of personal harm. Yeah. My economy beer, that beer which I need to have around to trade with others and occasionally drink in moments of crisis, is a nice cold bush light. Yeah. I want bush light. It's the cigarette in the prison yard of beers. It absolutely is. I would say. <laughs> I would literally build a castle of it to let people know where they might come to trade with me for beers, and I will just one by one break my walls down, handing bottles and cans to people, <laughs> like a true man of the people, thanking them for their patronage uh, and their and their their trading. So those are the three beers that I would want for uh, pleasure and or economic material purposes. The beer that we could absolutely. Absolutely get rid of his Miller Lite. <laughs> oh, God. A, a Miller Lite <laughs> tastes like whatever a bowling alley smells like. <laughs> I don't know why people drink Miller Lite. When people order Miller Lite around me, I have kind of a Toby Keith-like effect. Like, really? Okay. Well, you're coming off of some list of mine and going on a different one. Whenever I drink a Miller Lite, I'm like, is someone in here smoking? <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Who, wait, who's depressed in here? I smell depressed. Why does this smell like GPCs all of a sudden? <laughs> um, it... I love the Big Lebowski. When he walks into that bowling alley, I assume what's happening there is that in the back they're just brewing Miller Lite. Because that's where, that's where I feel Miller Lite comes yeah. from. Whatever that angst is. Yeah. So that's where I am. Where'd you land on this, though? Well, I interpreted the question differently. Boom. Uh, since we're on the macro scale, right? I assume we had to keep an entire type of beer and lose an entire type of beer. What are you keeping? So I'm going to keep a stout. Okay. And like all government officials, which we now are, well, yeah, in, as, in as the, the most popular podcast, uh, only yes, ten months we've been appointed. Um, I'm gonna just be naked and outward to everybody. I'm gonna say, hey, it's because I like stouts a lot. Personally, that's why I'm doing it. What I'm gonna tell the people though is that it's calorie rich. Like they just attacked our grains, people. Your beer needs to do more than one job. Sure. Like it needs to fulfill your calorie requirements. It's like a for grog. Yeah. yeah, it's it's more of a, a, a oatmeal in a beer form. Uh, so stouts will get stoutier. I will be down with that, uh, and it's really just my own personal taste. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna couch it in economic, rational terms. So I, I don't disagree in some ways. I mean, I think you know my my notion that the milf would be the beer that I would seek till the ends of the earth. Is, yeah, milf is, is safe, right? Which is great news. <laughs> but I, I worry about the amount of beer one might consume if only stouts were available. I mean, that seems to be look for for two people who sit around and drink a number of beers. In the course of an hour and a half recording a podcast, you know, getting through six stouts is wildly different than this 4.2% Von Pomplemus or 4. whatever percent it is. You're not worried at all about the alcohol content here? Look, I think it's going to be hard times for America and the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that we need to become the greatest generation. Right. By drinking a lot of stouts. I, I distinctly remember the hangover at, I had after we recorded our first podcast where we drank three Imperial stouts in one night. And it was one of the worst decisions I've ever made. We're fighting the Russians, Spencer. It's a Red Dawn scenario. You need a hangover to be good and pissed off and fight some Russians. Okay. okay. Fair enough. Uh, the one I would get rid of is uh, IPAs because they've gone too far. And 10 months from now, I can't imagine the bitumen rate of your average IPA. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so bitter. People literally die from consuming it. And the sheer fields and fields of hops that goes into a single bottle. 
of an IPA that literally is made, all of Oregon. Yeah, that is bottle. that is made so bitter it is literally untastable according to the human tongue. Uh, I mean, we can't afford that sort of decadent ex- excess in our dark dystopian future. Here's the thing that I'll say about that, and I've I've dialogued this uh, over the course of a couple episodes now. I've changed my, my tune on IPAs. I used yeah. to be an all-the-hop-all-the-time all the type of guy. Hop Slam is coming out soon, and that's a beer that I would seek out because it is literally a violent assault on your body yes. via hop. Um, and kudos to Bell's Brewing for doing that. Having said that, I, I've moved away from my, my hop needs, and I, I agree with you in as much as I think it is the least marketable, least accessible type of beer for most people. So if we're going to keep stuff, I suppose keeping one that more people are likely to drink would probably be a stout as opposed to the hop thing, which I know is a turnoff to many. Having said that, if we got rid of stouts, I assume that California, Oregon, Washington, I assume all of these states just leave the union. Uh, it's it's got to <laughs> be like, exit. Yeah, it's got to be like 90% of their economy at this point. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. Uh, your interpretation of the question is probably more true. So quick thoughts on that. I would keep your standard Pilsner because everybody can drink a Pilsner. Everybody can drink a Pilsner. Everybody can drink a Pilsner. Your Pilsner. mom likes a good Pilsner. <clears throat> My mom, who doesn't? Whose mom doesn't like a good Pilsner? Uh, I would probably get rid of, oh man, that's tough. Uh, I would get rid of uh, pale ales. Not IPAs, but pale ales. Hmm. Yeah. So Why? Um, the the more I fall out of love with hops, the more I the, the more I sometimes think pale ales are the uh, like dancing monkey monkey of beer. Uh, like it's a little bit of a show. It does just enough to make you like want to throw a quarter in that bucket. But at the end of the day, it's just a monkey. It needs to go harder in the paint. It it needs to commit to what it is. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Time for you to get another beer. Caleb, I have never been more excited for anything than I am for you to, A, tell us what you're drinking, and B, tell us how much you didn't love it. <laughs> what gave it away? Was it the tears it was the that new- are literally <laughs> flowing down my face? It was the part where I couldn't tell if you were coughing or pre-vomiting. <laughs> I, frankly, I couldn't tell either. All right. Um, so full disclosure, this beer was gifted to me because we are achieving the dream where people are just coming up and giving me beer now. Um, and so thank you, Sean. It was a wonderful... Sean from RPPR. Sean from RPPR. Uh, another wonderful podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so this is uh, Stillwater Artisanals out of Stratford, Connecticut's Stillwater Extra Dry, which is a um, beer brewed with sake. Mm. Uh, now, I love a good sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I drink it every 4th of July before setting off fireworks. Uh, That's your 4th of July ritual? Oh, I love a good sake and explosion fest. Um, I'm a big fan of it, and this is a hard below basic. Really? Uh, It is. Okay, I'm going to try one on air. He's tasting it live. He looks angry at the can. Now he looks like he's fighting back spit or God, the aftertaste is just like this exponential growth of... (laughs) Awful in the back of your throat. Um, yeah, this is a hard below basic. Yep. They're, much like actual public schools, there's very little middle, and the bell curve is a myth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the gap is huge. Where we've gone from two Montessori schools to to this. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what this beer did after high school because I'm not sure it completed high school. Wow. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah, it's. I hope it found a lovely trade. <laughs> so if I uh, cry and or 
hack something up in the middle of the segment. <laughs> know that it's nothing personal, listeners. It'll be the best segment we've done. All right. Uh, so what are we talking about? All right. So this is dissecting our fun. I would say of all the things that we've done thus far, this board game segment is probably the one that we've gotten uh, the most <coughs> consistent feedback on. It seems like people continue to talk about the games we've reviewed. Some of you have even sent us pictures of having purchased like Potion Explosion and some of the other games we've talked about. We Good love choice. that. Yeah, great idea. I hope you loved it, and I hope it, frankly, for some of you around the holidays, really ruined a family gathering because um, <laughs> it can do that. Today we're going to take a slightly different bent on dissecting our fun, and rather than talk about a specific game, we're going to talk about a scenario setting, a context matter, that, that is a problem in a number of games. And so what, what you're calling this, and I think this is a great way of describing it, is the co-op conundrum. Yes. So you want to explain the co-op conundrum? So it's something I've recognized before, but I'll be honest about what really drove it home. Mm-hmm. So over break, uh, iTunes gift cards. We're going to get to that later. Yeah, we are. Um, I bought a ton of board game apps, so board <laughs> games you can play single player with an AI or with passing around an iPad. Uh, and one of them I bought was Sentinels of the Multiverse. Which is awesome. Which is a great game, but um, and the art is all corrected so the weird proportions that are on the cards are oh, gone, good. and so it looks great on the iPad. And you can get like every single expansion for like 20 bucks as opposed to $250. Um <laughs> So I started playing it, but we've never won a game no. of Sentinels of the Multiverse, no matter how many times we've played it. And I realized it's because there is no game that so exemplifies the co-op conundrum as Sentinels of the Multiverse in that uh, the asymmetry is so high, which is cool in the design, and the uh, challenge against everyone in the co-op is so high that you really need one person organizing every single player's moves in order to win. So I've gotten okay at Sentinels of the Multiverse because I've like developed strategies with different heroes and I've tried all the different decks. But I have to like build like, okay, move four is going to do this, move five is going to do this, Legacy is going to come back, I'm going to pop next evolution, he's going to be immune to toxic damage, which is going to nate the card of this other card, and then I'm going to use the Legacy ring to pop the... Like, I am planning... So many, it's a chess game, right. uh, but I'm playing solitaire by myself. You, you need you need one general and fifteen foot soldiers. Yes, and everyone in the and like I think if we were to ever win Sentinels in the Multiverse, either everyone would have to get the app and train like I have, right? And we will have to found the optimal strategy, you know, just by fiat. Yeah. Or someone's going to have to tell everyone else what to do, and you are just card dispensing machines. So Sentinels of the Multiverse is a really... It's not one that I'd thought about in this category, but it makes complete Because we sense. literally never won it, because no, no. it falls so <laughs> deeply into this I've category. I've probably played that game 20 times. I think I'm probably like 1 in 19. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't really have any shame about that, because you're absolutely right. Especially if uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse is not for a casual gamer, probably to start out. Once you understand kind of the long strategy of any game, Sentinels of the Multiverse becomes easier. Um, for those of you that haven't played Sentinels of the Multiverse, A, highly recommended it. It sounds like the iPad version is great. The iPad version is wonderful because in the – keep in mind, you've won in 19. Right. You don't have the villain expansions. Right. I don't, and I don't want them. Some of those go up to difficulty four, and holy 
shit. I will say this about the box version of the game. You get a lot when you buy it, so it feels rewarding. Having spent $60 or whatever the cost now is, you get like 5,000 cards in there. So I appreciate that. Other games, though, so when we started talking about this as we were planning for this episode, here are some games in this vein that very much stand out to me here as as examples of the co-op conundrum. So Reiner Kinesia's Lord of the Rings game, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful cooperative game where you can play up to five of the hobbits moving against Sauron on the board. Yeah is a game that we often play with my in-laws. They actually introduced me to it because my father-in-law is an uber gamer. Uh, and what I've noticed is that when we have other like extended family in town, and I think this is what you're talking about, who don't play a lot of games, they will just sit, and other people will be telling them what to play as their hand is exposed. Okay, now play that card here, play this card here, you're going to move here, and you're going to try to you know roll for this or whatever. So, Reiner Kinesia's Lord of the Rings. Uh, Pandemic is a perfect example of this game. Yes. Pandemic, Pandemic, especially if you haven't played it yet. It should be the introduction to cooperative games for me in some ways. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, The problem with Pandemic is people who ask me to play games with them occasionally and who aren't really – who who aren't beyond the casual gamer. Yeah. Pandemic seems interesting to them, and then they end up sitting for an hour and a half – uh, exactly. And, until I either just say, okay, now play this card, now play that card, now we're going to do this, now move to this country and or city. Uh, and, and the other game, and I think it's the same game designer, and so I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but Forbidden Desert, which I think is the oh, same. Oh, yeah. It's probably even an easier version. And Forbidden Island. Yes. They're easier versions of the pandemic mechanic. Yes. Uh, which is the cooperative movement around a board to clear something off of a space mm-hmm. for the purposes of winning the game. I've been thinking a lot about this co-op conundrum, and um, I would put in Arkham Horror as well. Is that? Oh, oh yeah, I had to walk everyone through Arkham Horror. You did. One time we you played. did. I've never felt dumber in my life than letting you functionally not just walk me through the game, which you did an excellent job of. Yeah. But at some point, just saying, now do this. But but here's the thing about it: Pandemic is great for people who know games already, who like face it, they lose, and then they want to try again. And so everyone learns the relatively easier strategy of Pandemic. Yeah. Which basically comes down to like, do you get the good? card pulls right uh once everyone's playing optimally is there a medic on them but it takes yeah but it takes one or two games to get to that optimal strategy sentinels oh god i still can't tell you especially with the environment cards oh my god it's just nuts they'll ruin everything yeah and like so i have all these different characters there's some i cannot use there are some i have to use in every single engagement yeah and all of this is like back-ended you have no idea and like, if I'm going to teach somebody to play Sentinels, I'm playing Sentinels for them at least 20 times oh, until absolutely. they get the optimal strategy. So, like, because Legacy at first seems useless, and but once you start playing optimally, like, he's the only character, and he has to go in the exact same place in the initiative absolutely. order every time. Everybody else gets a bonus, and he's got to be the guy that gives it to him. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then you got to play Protect Legacy for the rest of the game. Like, uh, and so. There is this sort of thing, like, the co-op conundrum in Pandemic, I think if you're into games, is easily overcome, and then it's very fun again. If you're but into like, games. But for Arkham Horror and for Sentinels, like, it's not easily overcome. It's not. And you're not doing other... I've seen people um, use these cooperative games as a way of trying to bootstrap friends and or family members into playing more advanced games. And that is the wrong choice. You're not doing them any favors. Because I've been thinking a lot about this. You, you serve in, in, in that setting one of four roles. All right. Role one is reasonably passive educator. Yeah. So I know what's happening. You don't. I'm going to let you make decisions until you're about to run everything off the rails. And then I'm going to step in and kind of explain why you shouldn't do that. And then I'm going to let you play some more. Yeah. That's kind of a healthy approach to the whole thing. But you're not you're not teaching them. You're just course correcting. Role two is advisor. 
And I think this is the best way. So if this is something you're trying to do, you want to bootstrap some friends into your more advanced games cooperatively, I think the best role you can play is advisor. When faced with a decision, the advisor will give all of the options and explain them as clearly as possible and then say, given all that information, what decision would you like to make? And this is the one that I see people do the least because it requires really giving context. Yeah. And giving context is difficult in a game because the game is the context. Yes. Third rule you can play is micromanager. This is the one that I see people play most often. And don't do that. Micromanager is just do this, do this, do this. Like, I'm not going to actually play your card for you, but I'm going to tell you what card to play because I can see your hand. Yes. That's more annoying than the fourth roll, which is just surrogate. Here, just give me your cards. I'll do it. Sit there. Exactly. And, and so oftentimes I see people want to pull others into their more than casual game universe by playing fun cooperative games because Lord of the Rings is a wonderful cooperative game. If everybody there is either willing to learn, you're willing to advise, or they all know games already. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, you end up kind of being the asshole that has other people sitting around for an hour and a half while you play a game. Yeah. Uh, and the conundrum is, is that the co-op nature of modern board games, of many of them, is going to make you think that's the game to introduce people when that's so rarely the case when you should be using something competitive like Love Letter or Age of War or something very easily understood that is still engaging with a different mechanic than, you know, what they're familiar with, standard cards or uh, Monopoly roll-and-move shit. And that needs to be the stepping stone into those sort of co-op games. And then you can go into Pandemic maybe after you've played a couple of those. But, like, the co-op conundrum is that you think that this is so radically different, and if it's a game like Pandemic, so easy to learn that this is the game to go with. But, no, you're teaching everyone to play the game by playing it for them. Yeah, by proxy. And that's not the way to get anybody turned on. And for me, the thing that I like about cooperative <clears throat> games is I find myself being overly competitive sometimes in a board game setting. So, like, the first time we played Codenames with Brandy and Sarah, <coughs> yeah. you and I were far too <clears throat> drunk to play that game. Yes, we were. And we were terrible at it. I just drank the beer, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you, you look wonderful right now. Oh, I'm feeling great. Not at all like you're passing a stone. It's like the 47 wrote it or comedic seppuku on my tongue. <laughs> Or, or just like you're watching, taste all of it. Just like you're watching. I think you drinking that beer was worth it just for that line. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I like cooperative games because it, it it releases some of the competitive tension that can exist at a board game table. But that's not the right impulse to. I want to avoid competition, so I'll just play the whole damn thing. Yeah, I hate when people do that shit. Yeah. So. If you're a board gamer, and a lot of you seem to be, which is awesome, we love that, and thanks for listening, uh, don't be the one who tries to play games for other people and calls it cooperative. Unless some Mice and Mystics, because I've never had that problem with Mice and Mystics, even though it's co-op. Yeah, it seems to be... It's pretty... Go kill that monster. Go right. kill that roach but with your mouse sword. You still get to roll dice and... Yeah, and yeah, it's, you're still engaged. You like, still so, get some cheese. Not all co-op games. You just got... Don't go in there blind. Well, and, and that, to your point, could be a co-op game like that if you acted like that. Yeah, but, but you don't didn't. act like that. Don't yeah. act like that. Don't be that guy and or girl. No. I'm going to get another beer. Can I get a new beer, too? No? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair please, at this point. Please, So, Spencer has told me I'm not allowed to ask him what he's drinking yet until I explain the new system, which is apparently Ross and Spencer were very disappointed that I didn't get to record me almost throwing up on air. Uh, (laughs) So, apparently we made the right choice because we're going to try a first taste... we can only taste when the mics are on now. That's our new rule. So, uh, Spencer, I've, you're making some lovely faces. It has some, some ashtray quality to it. <laughs> so, so what are you drinking? 
Well, I'm going to butcher this. This is a Why Heinstefaner. Why Heinstefaner? <laughs> Ross, you want to take a. Yeah, producer Ross? Uh, no, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can't not sound. Producer like, Ross is fluent in German? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so this is their Hefeweiss beer, Bavarian style. Uh, no, I would not drink this again. This is for me probably. It's not a below basic. Uh, I did not have the same kind of like gag like reflex triggered that I think you did, having seen your face. Still am. Uh, this, I'm finishing this bitch for you. This patrons. is commitment. This is commitment, folks. <laughs> we should have live streamed just your face while you drink this. No, that's Some not, sort of no like one needs to see that. Punishment. <laughs> this is a basic for me, though. It's a solid two. Um, it it is it is it has that uh, half of Eisen quality. It's got some thickness to it. Uh, it's it it's a Bavarian style, which I think um, in this instance means it tastes a little bit like sausage and old cigarettes. <laughs> so I would probably not drink it again. Uh, after high school, this beer got one good job uh, and started uh, stealing money, and so now it has no more good jobs, and it's just trying to make ends meet and r- routinely visits a payday loans. So, are they at the point where they're moving their car around to different neighborhoods to avoid yeah. the repo guy? They are going uh, from payday loan store to pay other payday loan store. That's a, that's their Friday morning. Yeah. Um, so no, not for me. All right. That sounds great. Uh, what are we talking about? We are going to talk about uh, in getting lit uh, books you're supposed to love but hate. Uh, and you know this is a this is going to be a rough one because we might step on someone's favorite classic or something like that. But everybody has a few where everyone's just so into that book, and you just you you read it, you did the whole thing cover to cover, and you don't get it. Yeah, this one was a struggle for me for two reasons. One, um, I feel like a lot of the stuff I read probably isn't worth other people reading and or loving or hating. So it was just tough generating content. Yeah. Two, I don't... There's going to be a lot of high school on here. Probably. Maybe some. Yeah. I don't do a good job of remembering things that I've read until someone says, hey, have you heard of this book? And I go, uh, oh yeah, I read that book. <coughs> so like yeah. having to rack my brain for things I've read didn't go well. So I'm going to tell you where I started, and it was based purely on recency. And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, even though I know I'm right. (laughs) Here's a book that everyone loved that I didn't really care for at all and actually have tried to finish twice and couldn't finish. And it's The Martian by Andy Weir. Oh, yeah. Couldn't get into it. Did you see the movie? Nope. Don't care. Okay. Is how I feel. (laughs) Because if I landed landed that with that much of a thud on the book, I can't imagine the movie is all that much more entertaining to me. Here's what I don't like about the book – it's not the science speak. I actually thought the science speak in the book was interesting, and I appreciate that he took the time to do that. Um, I think that media, particularly over the last couple of years, has a really bad habit of everything always gets worse all the time, and I grow tired of that trope. And The Martian is a classic example of a moment of relief followed by moments of despair. And at some point, I don't want to deal with that anymore. So the claustrophobia of the whole thing wasn't great. Uh, I don't care for the setting at all. I, I typically enjoy interaction in in my literature. Not and, a big Robinson Crusoe fan. Yeah, that's literally yeah. It's the survivor of texts, right? I mean, there's yeah. no interaction for the most part because Mars. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, so yeah, I, the the book didn't land for me. No, sorry, not sorry. Uh, I could see it because it's basically a thought experiment with like some nerdy fan service in exchange for characterization. Like it's. Pretty much a nonfiction text with yeah. the character just being like 
Star Wars reference that's to right. be like a human being that's been in solitary confinement for almost a year and a half. It's an exercise in problem solving. <clears throat> yeah, wrapped inside of a book. So, like, if you're into like fiction and characters interacting, and, right? You know, typical narrative stuff. Uh, it might not be for you. I thought that'd be the way you go, but like the it always gets worse. Trope is interesting because yeah, why I can't binge of- Breaking Bad. Uh, it's why I had oh, to take no. a moment away from Silicon Valley, which I otherwise think is funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, that I don't respond well to that. It, it violates whatever sense of optimism and/or hope uh, that I, I, I a I believe in and b I want for my media. Yeah. So, well, where'd you start though? Uh, Catcher in the Rye. Really? Everybody's favorite high school book is something I loathe to my core. I hate Holden Caulfield. Well, yeah. Holden Caulfield got beat up a lot in school because I would have been one of the people doing it. <laughs> I would stop that little piece of shit. Wow. I hate that novel. I uh, And I get... Don't try and explain it to me. Like, I don't understand. Like, he's an unreliable narrator. <clears throat> don't pretend I don't get irony. Don't don't pretend I don't understand everything that's going on or like how revolutionary it is in the 1950s to have this sort of anti-hero, anti-protagonist uh, who has very little interest in going for him, uh, but nothing dramatic enough to be villainous. Don't, don't pretend I don't get it. I get it. I just don't care. Like, I could not give two shits about Holden Caulfield. I'm sorry your brother died. Please... Please stop being an asshole. Like, p- please, just for two seconds, stop being a compulsively lying piece of shit. You know who else had her brother die? His sister, who's not a piece of fucking shit. No, she's or, just, yeah, less, yeah, less shitty. Or everyone else in the world who's had any family member die who didn't turn out to be a loathsome piece of shit. Like, and you know, I get, I get, I'm sorry, I feel for you, brother. But, like, compulsively lying to, like, your friend's mother on a train and, like, trying to host- hire prostitutes to talk to you and all this just fucking overly dramatic woe is me bullshit. I, I hate Holden Caulfield. There's two good lines in that entire book. Is this and something? They're not worth digging for. Was this an immediate reaction for you? Like, when you were reading it, you hated it? An immediate, wow. visceral reaction. Right. And I, you know, I was a kid who loved English class, obviously. I was a kid who was like really into whatever my English teacher said. And he's like, "Oh, it's a counterculture. It's what all teenagers go through." And I was like, "Oh no, Mm-mm. no, thank you. Yeah, I am not going through this. This kid's a piece of shit, and I'm glad he dropped out." Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I liked the book, uh, and I'm not going to go into the reasons why I liked the book because you explicitly told me not to bother explaining all the things you already understand. <laughs> but 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 you're not wrong. It's the same reason that, for example, like I think Arrested Development is brilliant, but it's hard to watch for me because no one's redeemable. And they're all pieces of shit doing piece of shit things all the time. Yeah. And so at some point, it's just, this isn't funny anymore. Just stop doing piece of shit things. And I'm not saying that it's not realistic. Like, it is realistic. But in terms of something I want to delve time into reading. Because it's not an easy read. Like, no, yeah. It's not the hardest read by any means. But it's not an easy read. Delve time to it's like It's like, you ever see Hanky's Cache, where it's like all surveillance footage? For 90% of the film. That sounds awful. And it's like just still shots that are supposed to creep you out. And they do for a certain amount of time. But after a while, you're just like, why am I watching surveillance cam footage? Like, I get what he's trying to do. He did it. Yeah, that was my question. I see it. I understand it. Why are you persisting in doing it for another hour? That's Catcher in the Rye. Like, yes, I understand these people exist. 
yes, this explains a lot about the assholes I meet in my everyday world. They're all holding Caulfield characters that think their pain justify being dicks to everyone on the planet. And you, oh shit, there's 100 pages left. Did you like, hate The Great Gatsby? What? Did you hate The Great Gatsby? No, because Nick has an arc in The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Nick's a piece of shit, and he realizes he's kind of a piece of shit because he's trying to endeavor to join this entire class and society of pieces of shit. And he eventually, whether he succeeds or not, wants to abstain from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holden's just gonna be Holden. Just awful. And he's going to have this like, little performative speech to his sister that he's trying on about like catching kids in the rye for the next time he tries to get a girl in bed. And it's just disgusting. Uh, how many other books do you have on this list? I only prepared two. Uh, I only got about two. Okay. So my next one, and the caveat here is I haven't read this book since I was like 12. So it's really possible that at 30 I think this book is wonderful. Because I didn't go through my Kurt Vonnegut phase until I was like, 20. Yeah. Uh, and now I think it's the greatest thing of all time. So it's real possible I missed something in this book that everyone tells me I missed. Uh, and that's Joseph Heller's Catch 22. Ah. So maybe I was too young to read it. Love that book. Can totally see hating that book. Maybe I didn't understand. Maybe there were things that I, that I didn't understand because of age or lack of experience or vocabulary. Uh, maybe, though, just maybe. A fractured narrative about an otherwise shitty event is still a story about a shitty event. Uh, Right, wrong, out of order, or not. And so I found the whole thing odd but without purpose. Uh, I found it meandering to no end. And I Maybe of, it wasn't published for 17 times for a reason? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know what I mean? Like when someone says, hey, we're trying this for the first time, and I think to myself, maybe there's a reason no one's tried this before. That, <laughs> yeah. that was my response to Catch-22. Uh, and, and like I said, I've often thought about going back to reread that book now at a much older age and having fallen in love at some point with absurdity uh, and uh, narrative disorganization in Kurt Vonnegut. All of that stuff could be really interesting to me now, and maybe I've missed it. But I'll tell you, for the life of me right now, I can't come up with a redeeming reason to read Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Yeah. Yeah. Other than people say that you're supposed to read that book. Mm -hmm. So good for them. Uh, I'm going to go with pretty much the entirety of James Joyce after Dubliners. Oh. Don't get me wrong. I'm into some modernism, son. Like, I've read Four Quartets multiple times. I've read Ezra Pound, who I also think is a piece of shit, but he has some good poems. Uh, Marianne Moore, all of the Harlem Renaissance. I'm into Hemingway. I'm into Fitzgerald. I'm into Hemingway and Fitzgerald fighting. Like, I'm into some modernism. And Joyce, he just goes too far. I just don't give a shit. Yes, your first page of Finnegan's Wakes is 16 pages long. It was obscure, and I needed a fucking encyclopedia to do it. If I lived in Ireland in the 1930s, I'm definitely not getting it now, and I'm hacking and hacking and hacking and hacking away on it to, like, deal with, like, your penis insecurities, mm. like, your impotency stuff. Like, and I'm like, like I'm not, again, like Catcher in the Rye, I'm not going to deny, like, he's a hack artist or, like, lacks skill, but, like, it's just not worth it for me, man. Like, if I want obscure and needlessly rambling sentences that show how goddamn clever you are, I'll read David Foster Wallace, and I won't have to work... Three times as hard. Or yeah. Faulkner. <clears throat> or Faulkner, or for Faulkner. that matter. Uh, and it's just it just doesn't hit for me. It's just... So for books that you dislike, I'm hearing a theme, which is you assess quickly or not if you think there's some use value in continuing to read it, and then the idea that you would have to read more of it falls hard on the other side of that line. Well, I do that 
frequently, but like I do have redemptive acts in it. Like there are books that I loathed at the start and muscled through, and I'm very glad I did. Does any one of those come to mind? Uh, Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner. Uh, the Jungle. Oh. Uh, that I liked very much at the end and then didn't like when it got all crazy socialist in the last 45 pages. Yeah, um, yeah there are books that have rewarded me for that effort. And then there are books where you muscle through and then, nope, that was that was it. That one note was hit and it was hit early and it just... I gotta be honest, I'm not a good muscle thrower when it comes to books. I think the difference for me is if I'm, I'm getting worse and worse as I get older. If I'm thirty five percent of a way into a thing and I'm not into the thing, I'm not gonna make up the other sixty five percent. So like that's why I tell you the Martian's on this list for me, because I've gotten more than halfway through it twice, and both times I've thought, I'm literally just doing this because I want to finish this book, because I want to finish this book. I, I've read Ulysses just because, you know, English department. Yeah. You want it you want it in there for your dick measuring contests. Uh but I I couldn't hack it through Finnegan's Wake after knowing what I did for Ulysses and how little there was. Foucault's the Pendulum. There. I've started it four times, three yeah. or four times. I I have not even tried that one right. yet. So that's that's a guilty that's a guilty admission. Right. We should have one of those no. for getting lit. No, haven't read that yet. Uh, things you haven't read but should. Things that make you go hmm hmm. Um, I'm going to do you a kindness right now and allow you to get a different beer to drink oh, for our you. next segment. <laughs> literally hit rock bottom on that last one so i'm hoping i'm hoping that things turn in your favor here what are you drinking i am drinking a goose island four star pills which is a uh pilsner with a crisp pop aroma and a clean and refreshing finish according to the ad text do you agree with the ad text uh I'm, i don't disagree with it mm-hmm. i think it's a three star pills i think it is a uh mm. proficient pills mm-hmm. to use the alliteration there mm-hmm. uh pills efficient yeah and if you if you want a c plus b minus student go to a pilsner and this is the totally one true. to go to yeah and it's ju- but like i'm tempted to give it a five just because it has saved me from the previous right. perspective by incongruity. Yes, totally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I really want extra points from podcast listeners for my objectivity here. I think that's totally fair. What does this Pilsner do after high school? <clears throat> this Pilsner after high school gets a graphic design job at a local newspaper for ads. It's creative fulfilling. He's not breaking any barriers, though. He's just fulfilling. He's just a solid citizen. It's fair. That's fair. I appreciate that. Um, so in, in segment five here, uh, we are going back to Nerdsplainer, which is something we've done a couple of times now. I think the last time we did it, we talked about the evolution of speed runs. Yes, we did. And you had an interesting argument about what those mean. We're going to stay in the realm of games with Nerdsplainer, but a slightly different conversation. This was also a patron suggestion on Patreon, and because of a form submission problem on our end, we don't, Fuck that up. we don't have the name of said patron at the moment, but know that you're loved. We appreciate you. Deeply. And this is because of you, boo. Okay. Yes. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the shifting politics of games and gamers. Yes. Uh, and so talk a little bit uh, from your end about what that means and what we're trying to accomplish here. Well, I'm going to go off the term gamer because, you know, as a term, leave something to be desired. Because are we talking about the RPG space? Are we talking about the board game space? Are we talking about video games? Um, and also say, like, probably wouldn't have talked about this subject had it not been suggested. Not that I'm against talking about it because I picked this one. But because you did. it's unpleasant. 
like it gotten really unpleasant in the past couple years. So uh, what I will say, if I have to have a thesis statement for the segment, sure, is that the politics of gamers, as the question implies, have not shifted. The politics of gamers have begun to exist, and the crisis over what the hell that means is what we're currently experiencing. Mm. Because when you talk about the politics of gamers, and this goes a lot back into the nerd social fallacies, I don't think they're organized enough pre-internet, and I don't think they are... uh, Established enough as like a codified political group in terms of like having economic or political power in any way to have some sort of like coherent political force. And that's why you have these very, very disparate forces in like early RPG development. You got like Gary Gygax, uh, you know, saying that Christmas isn't really Christian and going that hard line right wing kind of stuff. Uh, and then you have like libertarian thinking. And then you have also the the radical acceptance of someone who's been scorned from society all throughout the 80s and early 90s, accepting everyone regardless of, you know, race, sexuality, uh, sexual orientation. Let me pick on that thread a little bit. And producer Ross, I want to rope you into this. Also, this is very much a world of yours Mm -hmm. as well. So talk to me a little bit more for for our listeners who wouldn't consider themselves probably uh, uh, literate on the, the dynamic political landscape of the gaming community what are in your opinions the most common agendas political agendas as it were of of gamers or in the gaming community um i mean i think there's two i think the first thing to when we're talking about the political politicalization of gamers i think it's also to keep in mind these are actually very very vocal very visible groups but they're by percentage wise of people who play games very very small uh, I mean, recently I saw the post from a game developer talking about, you know, like, for example, three million copies of Dark Souls 3 were sold this year. Three million. But the, the most popular message board for it, like on Reddit, has like 100,000 people subscribed yeah, to sure. it. And out of those subscribers, only maybe half of them actually have posted a single comment. The rest are just lurkers. So you're talking about like a small percentage of them but they're very big but because they're so visible on the internet they have a disproportionate influence sure and so i feel like there are there there are a number of political controversies in there one talking about representation in games mm-hmm. um and give me an example of that uh well for example there are there are reactionaries who believe that you know putting anyone other than a white man as the re- hero is pandering to certain demographics so mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Actually, well, I you know anything. Oh, uh, there's you know the all all sorts of screaming about you know having Laura Croft in a game, but having her first initial outlaying in the prequel game being an attempted rape scene. Uh, you've got one black man in Gears of War who is a literal minstrel show uh-huh. uh, of a racial representation versus, you know, screaming and bloody Murray about making another an Overwatch character black or making an Overwatch character not as sexy oh, as actually, you want uh, them to Overwatch be. Overwatch character gay. Yes, or make that- Overwatch character gay. Or <clears throat> on the left side of that is that gay thing pandering because she's girl on girl and it's a white guy writing it. Like, And so, yeah, the representation thing, there's hard left and hard right in gaming. But like my sort of thesis statement is that um, gamer as a tag is useless. You shouldn't throw it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should throw on maybe board gamer or RPG gamer. Sure. Because it's not as politicized yet, but eventually you need to ditch that as well. But video gamer, if you're a video gamer, congrats, you're a human now. The nerds won. 
And like every revolution, victory is what kills the revolution. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's no longer a movement. It's just the institution. Yeah, yeah. We're a – video gaming is a billion, billion dollar a year industry. We've outpaced every other form of media if you're into video games. Like if you're a video gamer, you're not edgy. Your mom's a video gamer. She plays Candy Crush more hours a day than anyone did on the beta of WoW. Like uh, it's – not a useful distinction anymore, but because it's not a useful distinction, it's because it contains literally maybe a billion humans at this point, and so there's some sort of political capital sure. in appealing to that uh, I sort of a base. Uh, well, another issue. and so I think I think it's not a shifting politic. I think it's like, oh mate, a billion people ascribe to like this hobby. Perhaps it should have some sort of political implication. Sure, and I think with the development of the internet, the argument about what that should be is what we're seeing now. Because when Gary Gygax posts a thing saying Christmas is paganistic and you shouldn't celebrate it, in the 70s, it's a fucking zine that 12 people read. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that case anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Ross, you, you said there were two... What you uh, thought political well, I think there are two major strains yeah. of it. Uh, one is, I think, sort of the... I would call it the reactionary, which is games should be as they were in terms of theme and content... As they were like, especially back in the 80s and 90s, you know, shooters should be, you know, shooting lots of enemies and, you know, the, the, and then the other one is the, I would say the more radical and again, you know, on a political thing where games could be about anything or could, should move away from these kind of representations. So like controversy would be like whether, for example, whether certain things are even should be considered video games. Like a couple of years ago, Mm. there was a Mm -hmm. game called Gone Home. Uh, yeah. And people called it a walking simulator because it didn't really have you. You're, you you literally played a college student who returned home. Her parents weren't home, and you just walked around the house to figure out what happened. But there's no like real challenges. There's no monsters. There's no right. Um, and so people said this isn't even a video game. Stop calling it a video game. And uh, people that instantly transferred into identity politics. Yeah. Uh, and on a, a more recent thing, there I saw a. Um, uh, at there's a gamer like gamer mm-hmm. like uh, conference or convention, and they had a panel there talking about the politics of get good video games, where they talk about whether uh, you know games like Dark Souls are like the only like if you criticize anything about the game, people just respond by saying, "Oh, you should just get good. You're not good," you know, and whether yeah. you know that obviously that's ableist to a certain degree because like yeah, this dystopian meritocracy of yeah. like, video game skill. Yeah, so those are the kind of issues. So there are people who want things to be the way they are and to not change, and then there are people who want them to change. Uh, and Gamer has been protested by the Westboro Baptist Church multiple times at this point. Sure. Yeah. So um, another thing I want to say is that the politics of video games, and this might be a sort of edgy opinion, I think could have gone better. I don't think anyone's arguing that Gamergate's a good development in anything. Um and I think it could have gone better if maybe it was more invited into the political spectrum in the first place. And I don't mean my like, FBI's report your Muslim neighbor games or whatever terrifying dystopia they have up on their Flash game page. Uh, what I mean is that um, video games didn't invite themselves into the political space. They were dragged in there kicking and screaming every time Tipper Gore wanted to say that Doom was murdering all the children sure. are like at congressional hearings about it. Like we're steroidal baseball use or something like that. Like video games were dragged into the space of like moral panic over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so when these political discussions inside video games become these 
extreme left-right like wars with no centrist argument. It's because you know the traditional mainstream political environment has never tried to appeal to anyone in that ilk, mm-hmm. uh, has left them out. And I think what you get from that is you know you get Tumblr feminism on one side, sure, and you get alt-right nutjobs on the other side, and you don't get the people that would actually be saying about the conversation in any way talking about it because the Dark Souls Reddit has 100,000 people on it, maybe half of whom have posts out of 3 million that bought the game. So as two people who have built games, because my entree into this other than hanging out with both of you as as game designers and game builders, uh, Destiny, for example, is kind of the the game where I spend some time, although I haven't played it in about a month. Sorry, Bungie. Um, (laughs) You know, if you go on the Destiny Reddit, to your point earlier, Ross, you know, the Destiny Reddit has tens of thousands of people, but the reality is that's such a small fraction of the community that when those tens of thousands of people clamor and demand changes, there's a sense that if Destiny isn't listening to them the most most dedicated of the fan base, then they're really not serving those who are spending the time on the game. So, so for both of you then, who build games for a living, uh, what do you think your responsibility is in relationship to uh, gamers who feel like they have some uh, – gamers is not a good term – users of your content who feel they have some active, willing ability to influence your decisions? Do you feel like you need to be representative of their beliefs and their wills as you build your games? Well, uh, I mean – there are two. There are two things for me. I, I look at user feedback uh, or player feedback in my games, or at least when I'm trying to design them, to see if they're experiencing what I wanted them to experience. If they're like getting, you know, my ethereal intent to some degree, or if they're getting some sort of intent that is like that I didn't, you know, something that something out of it emergent that I, play. Yeah, emergent play. Something sure. that I didn't design, but like that I feel is interesting now. On the other hand, I do so. I do want to get their feedback for that reason to see if that I'm, I'm or if they're not if they're missing the point entirely. If they're not getting it at all, in which case I need to change. Right. But I don't want to pander, which is to say, if they say they want this, and then I give them this because you know I'm not like a McDonald's fast food guy where you know the customer is always right. Um, I have my own ideas, and so if they say, well, I don't like base raiders because you know it doesn't have. Um, Frank Miller-esque characters that are murdering prostitutes, and that's that's what I feel like a superhero game should have, you know, because right. you know, uh, and there are people out there like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe, or you know, there or they. I believe it should be more Silver Age. I should be believe yeah. this comic book game should be like this, right? And I, on the, I, I just don't believe a game designer should just pander. To like give them what they say they want, sure. Like a, a, any creative person, you also person. have agency. Yeah, I also have agency, and it's you know I, I also believe in bars. You know, <laughs> the <laughs> author said, um, I believe that the creative, the goal of a creative person is to give people what they didn't know they wanted. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't believe that pandering helps things. So, I mean, but video games are a different issue because there's things like sometimes the fan base is right when it comes to like things like DLC or, um, I mean, I could point out like in Payday 2, people complain about like, oh, now we're adding weapon skins and things you buy for market and stuff like that. Yeah. People complain they eventually got rid of it. And I think that was a good idea. Caleb, do you feel responsible for the emergent agendas of your players? Uh, No. I, I will say that good design is intentional. 
And I'll go Marxist. Surprise. Shock drink. Um, and uh, I will say that everything is political. Mm -hmm. And so if good design is intentional and everything is political, my politics should be intentional. Mm -hmm. uh, so I acknowledge that I have a political bias in games like Red Markets and other RPGs I've designed. Um, and uh, I do spend like 20 hours a week screaming across cyberspace about those political intentions where it's not a real surprise when you find out certain things, I think. So I think that's what's selling the game at a certain point. Uh, and being authentic to that is being authentic to the brand and giving people what they want. Do you ever get worried given uh, you know, your earlier comment about the hyper-politicization of games uh, in larger comments about uh, values, society, etc.? Do you ever worry that the over-politicizing of your game based on your beliefs is a bad thing? Uh, yeah, I do at certain times, but I mean, I think it's also something I need to invite because, like, I'm I'm not saying my politics won't be intentional. Like, I'm a white cis Protestant raised mm -hmm. male. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been programmed from the moment I came out to have some pretty horrific shit in my head, mm -hmm. and I'm doing everything I can to get rid of it. And so, like, if I do overstep a boundary and I do have some sort of political intention that I don't intend to be in there, I want people to call me on it. And that's the stuff I want to draw back based on player feedback. Yeah. But if, like, if my uh, game about economic horror doesn't end in a socialist utopia, that's not very horrific when you escape from it. So, yeah, I'm sorry, guys who didn't like the game because it didn't end in the social utopia. And when it's not all great because, hey, the zombies got rid of the government and it's a libertarian paradise now, well, no. Like, there's yeah. no such thing. Somalia is a libertarian paradise. Go live there yeah. on the radioactive waste beasts uh, with lovely radioactive staph infections. Like, like, no, 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 it's not great. Like, and so I'm not going to buy with you just because you feel like I should go in there. But if for some reason my book is not representational of certain genders or certain races or something like that, I want to be called out on that and I want to fix that. Sure, sure. So uh, my politics are intentional. I think that's the best you can do. I think that's totally fair. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation with someone who doesn't have this kind of experience with games that the two of you do. Uh, I'm going to get another beer, but we should also maybe find another avenue to continue this conversation because it's interesting, and I'm sure some of our listeners are probably also intimately interested yeah. in how politics, your politics, and your players' politics influence what you do. Maybe a drinking alone blog post or two. Maybe in the a future. drinking alone blog post. Uh, speaking for of patrons, we're moving into <laughs> beer six. We are. Which is for the patrons. So if you want to hear us talk about uh, how Adam Smith relates to gift cards. And I know you do. Why would I know you? you're just like I know you just like overturned a desk or something where you were listening to this. You're you, like, what? You, you just finally dangerously reached into your wallet, which was in your back pocket while you're driving. Yeah, so that you could try to purchase this on your cell phone. Turn into the skid on some interstate. <laughs> We appreciate that. Uh, if you, however, are done with us, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate um, your participation and support. Don't forget you can find us on themix6.com, on Twitter, at themix6, or Facebook. And themix6 on Patreon. And themix6 on Patreon for Beer 6 and other bonus content. Yeah, and we're on iTunes. Other, and on iTunes and other podcast streaming services, I understand. Hopefully, yeah. Ditcher, yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you for Google listening. Uh, on to Beer 6. We'll see you on the other side.